0: Coming up next on Chapters, we have the rare opportunity to get a glimpse into the world of an FBI agent. In studio today, we have the recently retired Special Agent Thomas Chip McGinn. Chip will share with us stories and lessons learned from his over 20-year career with the Bureau, including being a first responder at the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks, as well as at the Boston Marathon bombing. All that and much more coming up next on Chapters. Welcome to another edition of Chapters. I'm Jim Derrick, joined by my co-host, Sarah Mabarty. Today we have a very special guest in studio who has dedicated his life to public service. Uh, he's a local uh, resident, resident of Rentham, Massachusetts. Frankly, I, I, I've been waiting for this interview for a very long time because this is not an interview that uh, that Chip was able to give until very recently. We are talking about the recently retired FBI special agent, Chip McGinn. Welcome, Chip. Thanks, Jim, for having me. The thanks is all ours, and uh, this show today is really is really going to focus on Chip, uh, his life with the FBI. Hopefully, dig into what the experience was like for him personally as he worked for the FBI as a special agent. Uh, just a little background on Chip: he spent 21 years with the agency. That's correct. Uh, with the bureau, I should say, um, 21 years from 1996, and you retired three months ago? Three months. Three months. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you for, for your service. The awards that Chip has are many. Uh, I'll just I'll just mention a few. He has the Director of Counterintelligence Award. He has the FBI First Responder Award for the 9-11 attacks. He has uh, most recently the FBI First Responder Award for the Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, just a few examples of the type of service that Chip has. Uh, has provided in his career and, and much, much more. And we're going to hear more about that. So, Chip, can you start out by kind of telling us the backstory of how you got involved with uh, the Bureau? Well, I'd
1: always been, you know, interested in public service. In, in high school, I was involved in a, a local explorer post uh, that was attached to the fire department. So I was sort of a, a, a part-time call firefighter, for lack of a better word, and so I really was a, a drawn to public service. And, and as I uh, grew up, uh, graduated from high school, uh, I kind of was exploring what other ways I could get involved. Um, also during college, I joined the police department where I, in the town of Westboro where I grew up, became a part-time dispatcher, and uh, got my foot into the door until law enforcement, and uh, I was hooked. Um, I finished my degree up at Assumption College in accounting, I went on to graduate school at Northeastern, got a master's there. And this was the early 90s, so the job market was kind of hard. So it took a while to find something. I was a a security guard at uh, Fidelity for a little while um, until I was uh, fortunate enough to get picked up by the Internal Revenue Service. Um, Spent a number of years at the IRS and had the pleasure of working some joint cases with the, the local FBI office. And I decided to myself, I said, this is kind of the route that I need to go. I yeah. mean, I um, I enjoyed my time at the IRS, but the Bureau just had so many more jurisdictions to work, not just in terms of violations, but also... Geography. I mean, they have offices all over the world. So I said, I, I need to do this. So can,
0: can you point to a moment, Chip, in your past when when you were drawn to public service? I mean, did this did this calling come to you prior to college, or was it something that you kind of developed over well, time?
1: It's funny you say that because when I uh, in my current job now, um, I've been having to interact with the Westboro Fire Department as my job. I'm the uh, VP of Security at Middlesex Savings Bank, and we have our operations center in Westboro. And it really is bringing back some memories as growing up in Westboro, the fire department had a big horn that would go off when there was a fire, in other words, you know, attached to a particular fire box. And so we had a chart in our kitchen of what, hey, how many, you know, beeps went off on the horn t- showed you where the fire was mm-hmm. and i always used to remember sitting there okay it's it's a 52 all right well that's on church street so what's going on on church street And if it was close i'd get on my bike and i'd ride and see what was going on that's incredible so, so i, you're I drawn was drawn
2: to danger from yeah, the very beginning
1: less, yeah. right I, just wanted, I, I wanted to know yeah. you know i wanted to know what was going on
0: yeah mm-hmm. uh, you know and 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 the amazing thing to me, and I've known you now for some time, so I've got to witness this, although I could never know the specifics, um, is that I know your dedication to public service. And and, and and through you, I've come to learn what real public service is. And real public service is self-sacrifice. You described it to me, though, differently earlier. You said that it was a calling. Yeah. It's a vocation it as is. opposed to a, a job.
1: It is. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I would obviously say, hey, I'm going to work. I'm coming home from work. But I don't think anybody um jumps into this career feet first like I did and most agents do mm-hmm. no thinking of it as a job it it's 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 it becomes a way of life it is a it is a calling it's a huge commitment as you know because we've talked offline a lot about some of the things that I've done and what I've had to do over the years for the job um but you you know to use the word altruistic is is what I describe mm-hmm. you know what I try to do you know you're trying to my part for the common good, you know? Um, I know that's kind of wishy-washy in a sense, but um, I just think, you know, there are times when, trust me, I think every job is a pain and Mm -hmm. it's a government agency and there are days I want to beat my head against the wall. But for the most part, I think the mission that the FBI does, and I think law enforcement as a whole, um, the FBI is unique in that we're sort of the, everybody looks up to us. We We set the bar for everybody else to follow, um everybody looks to us for guidance. We're the subject matter experts in A, B, and C. So it it's a it's a um it's a big responsibility.
0: Yeah, it is a big responsibility. And I
2: think Jim and I, um, the people there in the room with you right now can completely understand that desire to do. So I don't think it sounds wishy washy at all. And when you have that to follow that is I think the greatest reward. And it's not it sounds like it's not so much that you're part of the FBI, but you have this internal need to do it. right? Um, and yes, every job has its bureaucracy, and I'm assuming a government job has plenty of it, having been there once in my past. right? Um, but I can see that need to help others and how strong that is. And you actually joined at a time... Um, you know, looking back, where a lot of things have changed in the time that you've been serving. From the time you joined, the number of events that have taken place have really put you in situations that other other people definitely can't understand. But even in the agency, I have no doubt these are unique, life-changing events.
1: Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously, you know, September 11th was the watershed for me. I had been in New York City. That was my first office. Um again a Tuesday morning I don't think anybody that was down there even even up here
2: mm-hmm.
1: because of so much connection with what happened up in Boston um that was definitely a watershed moment and uh I think after the the Boston bombing the marathon bombing I think you Jim you and I spoke privately about this I think that was sort of the mm. my the churning of like you know what I think I've seen enough of mm-hmm. this yeah. and maybe it's time to start yeah moving well, on. let's
0: yeah let's let's talk about that a little bit because I think it is these particular moments in time, these experiences, these markers, where you probably had some some time to reflect. Um, And I know you've had a lot of them, um, some that you can tell us about and some that you can't. Mm -hmm. Can you take us back, though, uh, to um, to 1993, um, which was really when we first that I recall. this is my first recollection. Certainly, we had the Munich situation with the mm-hmm. at the Olympics. Um, so we were aware of terrorism. We were aware of hijackings. But uh, here was a situation where we had a new a new new to me, new to the public group, certainly not to, new to you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, drive a van into the World Trade Center and try to take it down. Um, can you recall what was going through your mind at that time and how were you involved in that?
1: At the time I was with the the IRS and and I do remember that, um, specifically, I think as most people do. Um, that was Ramsey Youssef and a in a bunch of um at the time it would be the precursor to Al Qaeda. But uh they drove a van full of um fertilizer and actually some hydrogen tanks in the back of a rider van into the basement of the parking garage of the one of the World Trade Center towers and blew it up. And six people died in that case. But fast forward to jumping into the FBI Ramzy Yousef and a couple other ones fled um, through the diligence of, of the FBI and some other agencies and some foreign governments. They were a- actually able to track him down in uh, the Philippines and, it, and he was arrested and brought back. And I never recall, I never forget this story to the, to the life of me, but um, the Port Authority of New York owns the Trade Center at the time. And the Port Authority detective who was on my squad was with ramsey in the helicopter bringing him back to manhattan to be processed at the court and they flew around the towers and said hey they're still standing mm. now granted that was you know if we could be prescient as to mm. what would happen you know a few short years after that but um but that was that was my first real uh exposure to a die-hard tried-and-true Terrorist,
0: and and you described you were in the room with this uh, uh, terrorist, and while he was being interviewed, and you described looking into the face of pure evil. Oh,
1: absolutely. He was he was um, no other way to describe it. Unrepentant. Just unrepentant. Uh, he. Dur- I remember never re- forget during the trial that he would sit at the defense table and just read the Koran. Mm-hmm. Didn't pay attention to any of the witnesses, none of the evidence, until. We played a video of the mock bombing that we uh, produced to see what the what the
2: like a recreation b- re-
1: recreation. Thank you for um, of what the bombing would look like. That was the only time during the trial that he ever paid attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, obviously convicted, and he had another co-conspirator with him named Iad Ishmael. He was sort of a lackey. Yeah, he w- he was actually crying and shaking a lot during the trial. So mm-hmm. I think he he wasn't as diehard as Ramsey was, but mm-hmm. um, they're both cool and they're here selling Supermax right now.
0: So so, so to the outsider, Sarah, I, I remember that bombing uh, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you do as well. I uh, actually don't. You really?
2: No, not that I don't remember the bombing, but I, uh, re- I look back to it in the context of uh, September 11th, 2001, and I'll tell you why. Um, something that I think might be interesting is I can tell you where I was September 11th, 2001. Please. Everyone does like, you know, anyone yeah. who was uh, aware right. can do that. I was on the 46th floor of the Hancock tower. And on that day I was emailing with a friend of mine. She goes, Hey, did you hear about the plant? The world trade center? How weird. And it was a one line email. And, uh, So looking back, you know, that was in the morning. And then we had TVs in the lobbies. I was working for Ernst & Young at the time. And all of us go to the TVs and we're finding out what's happening. And we start evacuating the building because we don't know what's going on. And we're on the 46th floor in the Hancock Tower, the most prominent building in Boston. And we're trying to figure out what to do before we evacuated. And one of the partners came out. He goes, we're out of this building now. And the reason why, and I'm getting chills saying this, he was in the Trade Center in 93. He says... We're out now, and he he basically called the bell and said, "Everybody out! We're not messing with this. Let's get out." And I walked home from the Hancock Tower to Brookline to my apartment, uh, you know, three or four miles, whatever right. it is. Um, and my husband was home, and he had flown into Logan, the same terminal that morning from his bachelor party because we were getting married that fall. And it was the devastation. So the reason why I say that, so that's my context of understanding what happened in '93. Right. But I bet you can say where you were in well, 2001. I, and We can talk to where Chip.
0: Ab- was. Absolutely, and I, I think I think what I was driving at was I didn't feel like the nation was in peril after '93. Um, maybe I wasn't reading enough. I don't know. I just mm-hmm. I, to me that was that was a one-off experience um, to okay. the to the average layperson. And Chip, I'm just curious to you as a as a brand new agent, uh, actually agent to be at the time. Yeah. Um, what was your experience knowing what you know at the time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was, um, it, w- it was definitely something that I had to I had to think, of. I had to process I had to think about. We were actually, Brenda and I were m- newly married, no kids, and we were down in D.C. when the 93 bombing happened. Because
2: um, you were still with the IRS at this I was, time. I was, you right. Would transi- you yep. would later I was transition. leaving
1: the IRS heading to the Bureau n- never knowing that I would play a prominent role in this this 93 attack as well. Um, there were there were agents in New York that had spent their entire career working terrorism back for the FALN bombings in yeah. the seventies yeah. and at the at the airports and mm-hmm. so I mean terrorism in New York City had always been sort of in context with each other mm-hmm. and um, I think this was uh, the first time that they had been broached by a, a true international um, Islamic threat to that okay. of that level. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I want to remind everybody that we are speaking with. Uh, Recently retired special agent, FBI. Chip McGinn. Uh, My name is Jim Derrick. My co-host is Sarah Mabardi. The name of the show is Chapters. We are on WFPR 102.9 FM in Franklin. You can also find us on our podcast ChaptersRadio.com and uh, we're talking right now about uh, the terrorism incident in 1993 at the World Trade Center and Chip's involvement. Fast forward a little bit, Chip. Um, You become an agent and what does it take You know, after you left the IRS, what do you do to transition into the FBI? What do you physically have to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, it's 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 a process. There's, it's a process. I mean, and I, we could probably spend a half an hour just talking about the the application process and the background investigation and the the, the physical fitness test and the it's a, it's a cornucopia of hoops to jump through, for lack of a better word. And and quite honestly, I think they want it to be. I don't want to say difficult, but if it's challenging, if you're very um, desirous to do it. Mm -hmm. You'll go through the motions like I did and everybody else that has become an agent would do. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. You're at Quantico? At Quantico and just getting into Quantico. You know, everybody who works for the Bureau has a top secret clearance. Mm -hmm. So that in and of itself can be an impediment for some. There's a lot of restrictions on that. Mm -hmm. There's a physical fitness aspect of this. I mean, even as I turned the grand age of 50, I was still having to run around a track and do push ups and sit ups to meet the physical fitness standards. So there's there's a lot to be expected once you get on the job. But mm-hmm. um you know, those are the those are the steps that we'd go through because it's something that we wanted to do.
2: Mm-hmm. Were you part of a class? Yes. That enters all together yep. and then a portion of that class endures through the rigorous training and the background checks and everything.
1: Yes. Um everybody uh, the background checks you won't get to Quantico if you don't make the background checks. Mm-hmm. So Everybody that made it, we started with 50. We finished with about 40 okay. in my class. Um, I had mentioned to Jim earlier that we had a handful of people that left on the first day. Really? Because I just think they realized that I don't think I can do this. I don't mm-hmm. think I can shoot somebody because they do carry a weapon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that I can hold that responsibility that the government's given me to to enforce these laws, work these cases, counterintelligence, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they leave.
0: And now, as a special agent, you were you were a technical person. Uh, yes. Uh, th- your whole career.
1: L- right? Yeah. Late, later on, right. I did st- I did start working regular cases first. Okay.
0: Yeah. So it was regular cases first, and then you transitioned into what special you, ops. Special yep. ops. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and your role with that was uh, surveillance, counter counterintelligence, uh, counterterrorism, uh, all through the art of uh, uh, listening, mm-hmm. watching, uh, placing cameras, uh, being creative thinking on your feet leading teams inv- advising the uh, the bureau of uh, the federal bureau of investigation on what they should be investing in relative to right. technology and how they might deploy that am i right
1: yeah right when i uh, towards the end of my career i was the boston division the tech advisor so i was the senior tech agent who oversaw all of our basically electronic collection um Again, how we do that really can't get into sure. here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was that was my function in the in the office uh, right before I retired.
0: And, and the incredible thing is, Sarah, I, here I've, I've known Chip for a while. We socialize all the time. Our we're, our families are friends. I read his, his resume, which he recently produced to get his new job mm-hmm. uh, and and had no idea that, that <laughs> the, uh, the level of responsibility he was carrying.
1: Beca- because there's right. There's not a lot that what I did is readily open for discussion. Sure. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the things that you alluded to earlier, we can talk about because it's been, you know, it's the ghost stories case has been taken care of. Some of these cases have been indicted. So mm-hmm. it's public record. Mm-hmm. Trust me, there's a lot of stuff that is never going to become public. So, so what
2: that tells me, Jim, is he did his job well. He did it really <laughs> well. And, and you
1: know what? And that's right, because that's why I've always <laughs> prided myself as what I do with is staying under the radar Mm -hmm. what we do as tech agents is always under the radar and so we don't we're not mentioned in court papers we're not mentioned here so to go public with my background and history is kind of mm. unusual for mm. me
2: and you had mentioned the altruistic aspect of what you do and that speaks to that i mean it's unsung heroes it's in the background it's people who are doing the grunt work with no glory That's right and there's something to be said for that. Right. so again as jim said thank you You're welcome. Yeah. and it's i can't pleasure. wait to learn more yep. so we've kind <laughs> of
0: set up uh set up what you've done and, and kind of why you were doing it um, if you don't mind, let's talk about a couple of of, of real things. Now we mentioned nine eleven. Can you reflect back to that day and where you were and and what was going on in the bureau?
1: Sure. I mean that for us, it was a regular day. I was working at a I was working at a different site. Uh, I wasn't in the main office in Manhattan. Uh, it was a Tuesday. We were getting ready for our regular day, and I think everybody recalls turn on the TV, see what's going on. We. Collectively, even nobody in the office really knew what to make of it. Although I know agents from our office in Manhattan, 26 Federal Plaza, were heading down because it was a couple blocks away. We, at you know, throughout the other area of responsibility for the New York City office, we were like, What's going on? And then when the second plane hit, every okay, that's it. We this is not an accident. So that's when everybody started to, to ramp up and get in there. So we packed up what we were doing. Headed in towards the site, and by that time, uh, the first tower had already fallen. By the time I got there, the second tower fell while I was on church at Vesey Street, kind of near where the Holland Tunnel comes out into mm-hmm. that part of lower Manhattan. So, I mean, I asked Brenda about this. She still remembers me coming home from work. That I got home about four in the morning the next day, just covered with the dust. I think anybody that was down in that app that. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of the city was covered with some sort of... Uh, and that's a
2: visual you take from the day. Oh, I think absolutely. that people who are watching it yep. on TV, it's just the devastation and everyone just covered with the remnants of what happened.
1: And, and just the surreal, it, it was sur- just couldn't explain. And I still, I have a CD of pictures that I had, that the office had of the site. And, and this is a horrible thing to say, but we called it the pit mm-hmm. at the time. Um, I, I have never looked at them. You know, I have never looked at him.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've known uh, Chip um, uh, through a lot of September 11 anniversaries. Um, and I had, this is the first time that I've heard him speak about it. Um, and I, so the post-traumatic stress uh, from that you were on your way to the towers. You were on the way there for a meeting um, and um, uh, and on duty. And uh, it's just to me, it's it's one of those. Moments where you say you must say to yourself, I, "I'm I'm pushing myself even even harder now to work to protect this country and to protect mm-hmm. people." Is it did that kind of propel it, you that way?
1: It did, and and I think and I think that, uh, like I said earlier, there was a watershed moment for yeah. myself certainly and for the FBI as a whole. Uh, I think Bob Mueller had been on the job for maybe two weeks before this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and um i mean it was business as usual just went out the window mm. um it was yeah um
0: so it it changed not only the way that we operate on a daily basis but but importantly it changed the the, the bureau yeah it did and and, yep. and other intelligence agencies yep. I, I fundamentally mean,
1: they've been working they've been working terrorism that that that's that always been a program mm. um the the way the fbi obviously now our priority is protecting the country from terrorist attack Mm -hmm. they have a they have a sort of a a matrix of our what's then comes counterintelligence then they have serious criminal criminal matters you know so it it goes down in importance but number one has always been you know since 9-11 is protecting from another attack sure so um it had always been a program but i obviously it wasn't um It it became the charter, the primary charter. It did.
2: And how did that change how the Bureau worked functionally?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Where to it begin? Again, it it expanded greatly. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a basic analytical component prior to 9-11. Our analytical component to date has grown exponentially. Mm -hmm. So from analysts of various... uh, cyber entities that providing us information um, and are working with the other agencies I mean mm-hmm. let's face it the bureau doesn't have the greatest rep of of um, working well with other law enforcement and other intelligence agencies and this forced us to mm-hmm. and so the creation of the joint terrorism joint terrorism task force we mm. call it the JTTF, right.
2: That's right I where that.
1: every agency has a presence in our office uh, us as the you know, sort of the head of the unit. But, you know, in Boston, it's the state police, Cambridge, you know, every other agency, Secret Service, and they all have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. They've all been cleared. So they can be read into the classified information. So I think that in and of itself sort of forced us in order to start, we, hey, you guys have to start playing with people. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. so.
0: I, I want to remind everybody, we are listening to Chip McGinn. He's a recently retired special agent from the FBI he gave uh, 21 years of service to the uh, bureau and uh, we're very grateful for that we are on WFPR 102.9 FM my name is Jim Derrick. my co-host is Sarah Mabarty this is chapters radio and um, chip I'm curious uh, with respect to 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 9/11 um, and and actually beyond 9/11 and everything else you've been involved with your job, put you in danger on a regular basis. Um, I, I actually recall a funny story and I hope I can tell this on the air, um, of, of, of you being identified when you were, when you were doing your job, uh, undercover. And I believe you were in a, I believe you were on a, uh, on a ladder and you were in a, uh, a public area and, uh, one of your classmates from college went through and said, Hey, uh, how you doing? I didn't know you were an electrician.
1: Yeah. It, it actually, it's funny but I think what you're i was <laughs> how can i put this uh i was in a building i think in manhattan yes in a different role uh, you know uh i wasn't overtly an fbi agent in this particular role i was undercover and i think it was one of my na- my uh, son's friends who happened to work in manhattan okay. happened to be in the same building and yeah. it was like what are you doing in here? Okay, that's <laughs> what yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. yeah, so I had it a right. little <laughs> wrong, but but the <laughs> idea
0: the idea being that you know this is not uh, this is not a safe job. It, there was there were plenty of opportunities. Um, you've you've relayed other other instances in which you've been um, when you were undercover in which your cover has almost been blown or you've been almost been injured. And to the average person, I know to me, the stories just make me break out in a cold sweat. Here's my point: uh, at home, you've got a family, you've got a wife, and you got children. Mm. Um, this really is a family affair. How does this impact Brenda and the kids? Oh, oh it's over the huge. Years?
1: It, it's huge, and, and I, I know she, over. And you can ask. My wife has kind of grown. Granted, she doesn't put up with that anymore. Weary of me saying, "What? What did you do? How was work today?" I really can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know that got. She got kind of tired of it, but she mm. knows that there's a risk involved because. Because what we do, a lot of what I did as a tech agent was covert. It was undercover. It was at night. It was the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were tasked with um, what the Bureau calls surreptitious entries. We'd have to break into places to put stuff in. Mm -hmm. There's an inherent risk when you're planning a burglary, whether it's under a court order. So the good thing about the FBI is... We plan these things methodically. We have backups to backups. We have people out watching our back. So I recall the time that we were trying to steal a car in Yonkers, and my boss was kind of running interference for us in this parking garage. Well, one of the neighbors decided to come out to get his car, which was parked right next to where I was working. So I just roll right under the car adjacent so that I was under the car while this other person left, and I'm mm-hmm.
0: I'm so, assuming that the potential for you being found probably wouldn't uh, necessarily have had a good outcome uh, for either the person that uh, found you or God forbid you.
1: No, but I but also over the years I've I've developed a pretty good sense of being able to talk to people to get done what I needed to do mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. a lot of times as I've tried to uh, relate to my kids who spend their life on their phone <laughs> i said part of being an fbi agent or or you know is your ability to talk to people mm-hmm. you know and as an agent whether i needed to talk to you as a witness or in an undercover capacity to get into your closet so i could install something
0: mm-hmm.
1: your ability to interact with people is key mm-hmm. and i would relay a lot of these stories how i could you know basically BS my way to get done what I need to
2: get done. <laughs> Talk your way into yeah, a situation. Exactly,
1: you know, so, um, but we had, we had a different, you know, the tech agents had a different charter. We weren't, mm. you know, uh, we weren't arresting people on a daily basis. We had a different mission. So we had to act differently. Mm-hmm. And I've told Jim over the years, I've had numerous Undercover roles and some of the uniforms to prove it (laughs) still.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Halloween's coming up.
1: Yep, exactly.
2: (laughs) Now, you had mentioned earlier, so, I mean, Jim is talking about the inherent danger and what you do and the risk. And also, um, you get exposed to a lot of things that a lot of people don't get exposed to. And earlier in the conversation, when we were talking about 9-11, you said, you we referred to it as the pit, apologetically. Yes. Um, And you also said that there's a disc that has pictures that you haven't looked at. And that speaks to the need to kind of separate yourself from things. And you have a family and there's risk. How was that for you? And do you think that, you know, take this as I mean it, did it come easily for you? Or was that something that you had to evolve into, especially in the climate that we've entered with 93 and September 11th and being in Boston for the bombings? How? I don't even know what the question is, about. how?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, I want to say the word, maybe I'm cynical now after that. I... I, the The bombing was a was a tragedy, and but I think my heart was hurt more. I think by the gravity of nine eleven and the fact that I was still so close to where it happened. And I remember being down there. And I get, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but I'm just it's making me think of something. Whatever you're saying, you're answering my question. <laughs> the we went down to the and again I hate to call it the pit because it's a, basically a tomb. I mean that's. 3,000 people died. It's hallowed ground, yeah. It is, okay. Mm -hmm. Going down there and helping to search and just some, it wasn't a bystander because by then all the bystanders had been kicked out. It was just too dangerous. A fireman or another police officer just holding his hands up saying, where is everybody? Wow. Wow. Because you had all, and this one fireman standing right next to me said, you're breathing them.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Because these people just vaporized. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to harp on that is they shut down that part of Manhattan from pretty much the Lincoln Tunnel all the way down. And we could get down there, obviously, but they had refrigerated trucks brought in along the West Side Highway. If you're familiar with that part of the city where the um, aircraft carrier is, yep. lined all up and down right. because they expected all these casualties. Yeah. and Nothing.
2: Well, I remember they Zip. I remember when they said they're like body bags, body bags, we need you know, and donate blood and yep. then afterwards we said, No, we mm-hmm. don't. No. Nope. Yeah. We, we didn't need any of this and because nothing's left.
1: We we were we were working out of our auto garage at the time because the main office was taken offline due to the towers falling. Mm-hmm. So I remember being up there one night, nine o'clock at night, and coming up the Hudson River to the to the cruise ship terminal was the Comfort, the U.S. Navy right. hospital ship, Comfort. So all of a sudden, in the pitch black, you see this white ship with the Red Cross crest on it. Like, we've entered a war zone. Yeah, That was the first thing that I thought of. I said, this is now a war zone. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, here it is, 2017, and we're still at it.
0: I think, I, I appreciate appreciate Sarah bringing this question up because it's something that I've often wondered about, Sarah. And, um, and that's the separation. You know, how do you... Do you compartmentalize in your head? Because what you're talking about here is um, witness, being personal witness to uh, it, it just just a, a tragedy of of epic proportion, um, horror. Horror like we hadn't experienced uh, since probably Pearl Harbor, um, and and uh, so h- how is it that you emotionally cope with that? And is it is it, is it an innate ability? Is it something that's trained over time, or is it something that you had before you got in there?
1: It could be a combination of things. To be honest with you, I mean, I, I, you remember my my father died when I was high school. He was sick for a good number of years, so I had sort of been. I used to tragedy for a mm. ways so I had some
2: You woke up early.
1: Thank you. That's a, exactly. So um but that being said though I think I hadn't gone to church in a long time after 9/11 and I know we started to go back right after that and I think I don't think any
0: So you mean prior to nine eleven you hadn't been going not, to church? not not a lot. Yeah, no. Okay. And, and then afterwards. You afterwards changed your we just changed because I said this journey. is
1: yeah. yeah, we need we need some because I how do you cope? You know, mm. I mean my wife was doing what she could, but there's only so much you could and the, the government was iffy with providing uh any sort of counseling for first responders, which we were yep. um because I think they viewed the, the, the police and the fire obviously they needed it a lot more than we did. We mm-hmm. we, we did lose um, one agent and a retired agent did die when the towers fell, um, but not compared to the 343 from the fire department and, you know, the 50 or so NYPD and Port Authority cops that passed away. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but still any, any, any death from a, you know, uh, somebody public service mm-hmm. uh, stinks. Yeah. So, yeah. um yeah, I think it for human, it's difficult. I think we as humans are, we sometimes need to lean on somebody or something mm-hmm. to uh, to help us through a tragedy like this.
0: Mm. Um, you know, Chip, uh, one of the things that, that other themes that comes up, and, and in this day and age right now, we are hearing a lot of talk of patriotism versus nationalism um, in our current political climate um, with our most with our current commander in chief, um, it seems that uh, uh, being a patriot is 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 to be nationalist. Um, And and I'm just curious as to as to uh, not not to ask you to current to comment on on our current political climate, but more, uh, you know, how you feel about. Being a patriot. What does being a patriot mean to you personally?
2: And well, I'll throw in there really quickly please. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but also um, you've traveled the world. So you have a unique perspective in what goes on in the world. And you've traveled the world having gone through um, the trial of, uh, for the right. 93 bombings and seeing what other people are capable of. And how does that define other versus us? And how has that changed your context?
1: It's funny because I was going to kind of segue into my my travels. I mean, it's it is. I have, if you've known, I've been to a lot of a lot of different places, and and um, I've had a lot of good trips. I've had a lot of bad trips. But the one notion that I always have is I am so glad to come home. So glad to come home, and I don't think that patriot nationalist. It's to to be fond of one country one's country and our and our way of life and what we stand for i mean in other parts of the world the world still looks up to us okay now granted i haven't been overseas since our current uh cic has been in power but the world still looks up to us when i go to a u.s embassy in kenya or in india or in russia or wherever i've been there are people that want to go there are mm-hmm. people that want to come they know what we do they know what we stand for and to be a proud citizen of this, it it, it makes me happy. You mm-hmm. know, um, I, I, I get right. This isn't a place for a, a political debate about you know kneeling during the NFL or or what have you. No, which well, is um, in the news now. My
2: context more is having seen um, a lot of times when people um, react to acts of terrorism, it becomes them. And having traveled within those cultures, have you had that cynicism? You referenced cynicism earlier. Um, Have you had a cynicism against others, or have you been able to travel and see the context of everything?
1: I think it's everything, because you know what? We're not the only ones that are going through this. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was in Kenya a couple years ago, and back in 1998, their embassy was bombed. Correct. And Tanzania was bombed, right? Country next door. I've been to Russia. They've also from Chechen separatists and others. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're and, and I and I've been to Israel. I mean, let's face it, they, they have have been living with this for a long, long time. So mm-hmm. I think as as an American traveling abroad, you can feel the palpable sense that people have of of are we next? Is something coming down the pike? Um but as an FBI agent, I know what my agency did to prevent it. Mm-hmm. I, You know, I can't go into what I did overseas, but mm-hmm. um, a lot of those host governments look also look to us for guidance. I know we have, I think we're not to now 65 offices overseas, mm-hmm. and that primarily is liaised with the local police agencies to prevent stuff like this mm-hmm. from in their country and in ours.
0: You know, you know I am actually going to push the envelope a little bit Um, and I'm going to ask, take a risk here. Um, I am going to, I think you are, um, I would like to give you license to comment on what's going on right now with kneeling, uh, during the national anthem and how that impacts you or doesn't impact you. I'm interested in your perspective.
1: I I think it does impact me. I I don't care for it, to be honest with you. I, I do consider myself a patriot. I love my country, but in the same breath, I also know that it's their right to protest and I'm not saying that from a former law enforcement officer because I think this whole kneeling thing started with the the mistreatment of African Americans by police, and yes. I understand that. Um, it's nonviolent, okay? People get torqued off about that. I understand that. Like I said, it bothers me, but you know what? It is their right, and so I can't disagree with that right.
0: All right. And and you know that's that's a developed opinion from somebody that has had the ability to develop their, or rather to, yeah, to develop context.
2: Exactly. I was you know, going to say context I think you put of the greater that beautifully. picture.
0: Yeah, I think you put that beautifully. I just want to remind people, uh, you're listening to Chapters. Our guest uh, this evening is Chip McGinn, who's recently retired special agent with the Federal Bureau, Bureau of Investigation. Um, Chip, uh, on to the marathon bombings. You were uh, a witness to that. You were on, um, uh, you were on duty for what seven days straight yeah
1: I did I think I did my time card after that I think it was 126 hours
0: 126 straight hours yeah Um, I remember you recalling to me that you had the stomach virus in the middle of that I did and you didn't leave your post (laughs) which you know it boggles my mind because I I just um it, it once again another another case of 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 commitment and duty and service above self um Can you take us back to those days and and what was going on for you? Oh,
1: that was, yeah. I mean, a lot of that, believe it or not, is still a blur. Um, I I do remember the marathon. The marathon was always an event that we would cover from a security standpoint with the state police and others. So we were always involved. Um, But, you know, everybody, we had the TV on and everybody was thinking, was that a gas explosion or something? But um, I think once they figured out that there was something nefarious, everybody was... Um, everybody was called to task. So basically, more or less, the entire office was called into service. So we actually had agents from our Bangor, Maine uh, sub-office made their make their way down downtown.
2: Now, were you on site the day of the marathon bombing? I was bombing? not. No. Nope. Okay. Uh,
1: we were, again, the bosses, the only people that went to the site was our evidence recovery folks. So they, they basically, cordoned off like a fly, five block area. But
2: the FBI was present during during the marathon yes. in the context yes. of doing surveillance yes. and assistance, yep. but in the past it had yep. been more of a passive activity whereas this year of the, of the bombings it became Yeah. once it was apparent,
1: it was. right, once it was apparent it was a terrorist attack then jurisdictionally it comes to us. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of of back and forth between the, the the state and the locals and and our bosses, but I think everybody knew from a re- relative relatively quickly that this was something was bad there was a bomb so uh, by statute it becomes an fbi case
2: and similar to september 11th it wasn't the scale of september 11th but it also for me it felt like a turning point in terrorism in the u.s because it was a public event with a ton of spectators Mm -hmm. um internationally inspired but homegrown Homegrown. Right. So these were people who lived in the United States that had points of contact outside of the United States, but it was in our backyard, Correct. in Boston, at a public event, and it kind of changed um, that sense of security. You know, New York is one thing. New York is a big city. It's far away. It has big buildings. There's a high concentration of people. Boston is a secondary city by all accounts. Um, Although most Bostonians don't want to believe that, <laughs> no, I certainly don't. No, definitely not. <laughs> um, but it's not historically has not been right. a sort uh, a, a primary target. place sure. a no. target. We've, we've sort of and been now insulated. we're seeing that. Um, to put this conversation in context, we recently had the biggest domestic um, mass murder in the United States. So taking it one step further, so. The, going back, the marathon bombing was that did the FBI FBI also see that as a turning point?
1: I think they did domestically, especially for the special events, um, because this was something that uh, they always classify, even even prior to the bombing, um, they would they would cover you know the super Bowl, the the u s Open. Any big spectator event would get some level of coverage based on its threat. Mm-hmm. And because we were talking with the other agencies, um, they were able to pick up chatter overseas from you know various sources as to, hey, is the U.S. Open, or is the New York City Marathon, is the Boston Marathon, is the World Series. So any of these had some basic levels of coverage. I think this turned it over on its head, basically, mm-hmm. because now they have ramped these uh, special events up to, and even after the, the shooting in Las Vegas this week, it's going to be at a different level altogether.
0: Yeah.
2: No, um A conversation that's going on right now is the definition of terrorism. So we just referenced that this past week, uh, 59 people were murdered by a U.S. citizen in a Las Vegas hotel who attacked a concert. Over 500 people were injured. And we'll see if the death toll goes up. So this is a tragic event. But the conversation out there is that he's not being called a terrorist. Now, whether or not you believe this was a terrorist act and that it incited terror, that's one thing. But can you speak to what qualifies as a terrorist attack? what What is defined as terror in the eyes of the FBI?
1: Right. Well, what the FBI, I think the FBI would actually look at it in an academic sense is a it's it's a it's an event to cause terror, mm-hmm. okay? Whether it's a white supremacist driving a car down a street of spectators that happened in Charlottesville or this, this guy in Las Vegas shooting, his, shooting a machine gun from the 32nd floor of the hotel. Um, most people tend to lump terrorism as a ideology inspired event. You know, Allah made me do it, or, you know, ISIS, I'm, I'm an ISIS follower. So they, they, they tend to just want to wrap it under that umbrella, so to speak. And, but it can, terror can be in a lot of different ways a uh, an anti-abortion i remember working an anti-abortion right. case um uh burnett slepian was uh the doctor that was shot outside of
2: Buff- east Amherst, new york new york yep uh my friend used to babysit his kids oh, and as uh, a family friend yep. of the Sleppian family so. yeah that was that my... immediately thought that what a that was in 90 Shapers. oh gosh that was uh 90 96
1: right and i think the the that the, the uh, shooter's name was Cop, K O P P.
2: K O P P, that I'm is correct. To... And he was waiting in the backyard right. and um, shot him as he came home from a family event. So I had. So ha- terrorism. Yeah,
1: so that, right. That was, you know, obviously an anti abortion type uh, scenario. Um, but that was my first top 10 fugitive case that oh, I wow. had to work in New York. But um, fast forwarding a little bit to that, using my electronic and other expertise we were able to identify him over in France and he was arrested over there. Well, yeah. thank you. So,
0: yeah. Yep. Uh you know, so I I used to ask you all the time, Chip, knowing what you know today, should I feel less or more safe? And and that was a conversation that we had many times and you know, I was actually looking for the answer and you would give it to me. Um uh to the best of your ability. Um you know, for me it's been very humbling to uh, to to know you the way I've known you over the years and to see the sacrifice that you've made for our country, for our safety, the selfless acts of, of giving of yourself, giving of your time, moving your family around, spending a week uh, at the Marathon bombing. And, and by the way, Sarah, uh, recently, 4th of July, fireworks in the Esplanade. Um, we're, gonna, we're going to a barbecue uh, everybody says, Where's Chip? Well, guess where he was? At the Esplanade for, I don't know, 48 hours straight wow. protecting people. Um, and um, I, I just, as I said before, you can't, humbled is the first word that comes to mind to be in your midst and to, to be able to call you friend. Um, I really wanted to do this show because I don't think a lot of people know a lot of FBI agents. I don't think they Nor know. Nor should it. they. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right.
2: Good well point. Put, well put.
0: <laughs> well put. So, so this opportunity doesn't avail itself very often. Um, and importantly, the public service is something that we um, I think I know that I have taken it for granted in the past. And and I'm fortunate through you not to take it for granted. I can walk into Fenway Park and feel safe. And uh, it's because of people like you in the bureau. Chip, I just want to thank you again for your public service. Thank you for your sacrifice to this to our country and, uh, and for protecting us. Thank you, Chip. Welcome. It's my pleasure. So for Sarah Mabarty and Chip McGinn, my name is Jim Derrick Singh. Thanks for listening to chapters.